Well, good evening. It's good to see you. It is good to be amongst friends. Always feels like we're with friends and family when we come to harvest. Uh, Tonight, uh, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. I know that you are almost concluding the Gospel of Luke with Pastor Dale, and um, nobody flagged me off this text, and I think I said last time I'm, I'm, um, I'm quite happy to correct whatever he said uh, when he was moving through this chapter. Uh, we have been uh, working through the Gospel of Luke as well over at Redeemer, and in uh, the last few weeks we've been in this section of the Gospel of Luke where uh, Jesus has really been addressing our hearts in terms of how we look at His kingdom and our kingdom, how we look at His kingdom and the world, what the world has to offer us. And so I thought tonight I would just bring you uh, a message out of that text. So we're going to dive right into the middle of Luke chapter 12. And if you have your Bible uh, open, would you turn with me to Luke 12 verse 13? Jesus' uh, ministry is so on the ascent that at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, it tells us that there were thousands that were crushing in just to hear Him. And uh, Jesus begins to teach, and He has been teaching on things like the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and not fearing what man can do to you and standing for the Son of Man because He stands for you. And one of the things that He's been accenting again and again is the fact that this life is not all there is. In fact, He thought we should not fear what those who can kill the body do to us, but we should fear Him who after after death can send the body to hell. And so that's where we are as the Lord Jesus teaches these thousands, and now He turns to teach His disciples. And then in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13, He is asked a question. Someone in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But He said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And He said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there... I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for giving us this opportunity this night to come again into Your presence. This is a a holy moment. Lord, we thank You that through the week we're able to have communion with You and our families. We're able to have communion with You personally. We're able to read the Word. We're able to pray. We're able to worship in private, but this is your day. You set this apart. This is special, and um, you have ordained this hour and this moment 
for your servant to bring your word to your people. And so, Lord, we pray that you would attend by your spirit, that the preaching of your word would not come in persuasive words of human wisdom, but as you address each heart and mind in the demonstration of the Spirit's power. So, Lord, that you might instruct us, you might illumine us, you might correct us, you might rebuke us, you might train us in righteousness. All of those effects that you have inspired your word for. And so, Lord, we pray now that the Almighty King, that you would come, gird on your mighty sword, our prayer attend, your people bless, and give your word success, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, the Wall Street Journal addressed a fear that is fostered perhaps by Hollywood's imagination about robotic artificial intelligence. The column in the Wall Street Journal was called, How to Survive a Robot Apocalypse. Just close the door. Apparently, for those who fear a robotic takeover of the world, the hope is yet that robots find it difficult to do things like turn door handles. And when they figure out how to turn the door handle, they don't know what to do once the door blows shut again. So as yet, the robots are not ready to take over the world. All you have to do is shut the door. I was able to sleep at night a little better having read the column in the journal. But it struck me that the way that they cast that is we're people who like to be on guard, even against a threat that might be in the distant future. More immediately, more seriously, there are real risks that we want to be vigilant against, the threat of terrorism, both domestic and foreign. We're attentive to every report. We want law enforcement to be vigilant and use all the tactics that are available to keep us safe. We are protective of our homes. More and more of us have some kind of security system in our home, and we do make sure that the doors are locked at night. We are protective and safety conscious of our children, in my neighborhood at least, Uh, The parents line up their SUVs to get their children from the bus so that they can drive them the few hundred yards from the bus to their door. We live in a day when parents can have baby monitors on their phone. When when, When it was my kids, you could listen. Now you can actually watch them breathe in the room. We're careful with those things that matter to us. We, we take seriously the fallenness of our world and we take care and we are on guard for our families, for ourselves, for our churches, for our nation. But what if the same vigilance to protect against greed was, ta- was needed to guard our hearts? What if we needed to exercise the same kind of care to avoid covetousness, taking control of the center of our personality, that which drives our affections, our minds, our wills, our decisions. Well, according to Jesus, there's no what if about it. 
In this moment of his ministry, Jesus called those who would follow him. He's speaking to this crowd of thousands that are crushing in to receive his ministry. And he speaks to them about guarded vigilance against covetousness that can so subtly assault our hearts. Tim Keller addressed this risk in his profound little book, Counterfeit Gods. Here's what Keller wrote about this. He says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, the people around me. Can't remember anybody ever coming into his study and saying, Pastor, can you help me with this? See, covetousness is a subtle kind of a sin, particularly in an affluent society like we have, where we can gain more and more, and where having more and more is interpreted as a sign of success, when the accumulation of more is the air we breathe, and the acquiring of more is the DNA of the culture in which we have been nurtured, covetousness can actually mask as a virtue. And it's not just the secular culture. It's not just the world out there that can be blinded to how greed assaults our heart. It can be the most religious people in the world. If you read the Apostle Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 7, you can come from the most religious family. You can know the right religious tradition inside and out. You can be the most scrupulous attender of religious worship and have a heart that really lives for more and more stuff. Read Romans chapter 7. It was the command about covetousness that got the Pharisee Paul. In fact, the assault of greed on our hearts might be more subtle in religious communities where affluence is seen as a sign of God's approval that you did it right, and where we can actually use religiosity Sunday after Sunday to mask the affection for this world that really does fuel our hearts. So, in this moment of ministry, Jesus seizes on a bad question and turns it into a life-transforming reality, a life-transforming lesson about guarding our hearts against covetousness. Tonight, as we walk through the text, I'd like us to see that Jesus gives us three ways to guard our hearts. First, we can guard our hearts by hearing Jesus' answer to a question about riches, by hearing Jesus answered to a question about riches. Look at verses 13 and 14. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? The fact that the questioner called Jesus teacher might mean that it was one of the religious leaders that asked the question. Often in the Gospels, when Jesus is addressed... In this way, it's one of those religious leaders who's doing the talking. Whoever it is, it's intended to show some kind of respect for Jesus, even if it's it's just for show. And it wasn't unusual to ask rabbis or religious leaders to settle disputes 
of the, of the family kind, particularly disputes over an inheritance. So in one way, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to ask a teacher who's got thousands of followers following his every tweet to give you some advice. On top of that, Jesus really is the judge of everything. He Himself has been revealing that He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of God. He's the one that God has anointed with absolute authority over absolutely everyone, absolutely everywhere for eternity. He's been teaching that all the way through the Gospel of Luke. There actually will come a day when Jesus, in fact, will be the judge over this man and everything He's done, including His inheritance. But here's what you have to come to terms with if you're going to follow Jesus authentically. He always knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what's behind the question. You might be able to fool your spouse. You might be able to fool your friends. You might be able to fool your pastor. You might even be able to fool yourself about why you are posturing yourself the way you are toward Jesus. But Jesus always knows the real you. And so Jesus answers the man. Man, he says. Now the way that's put together, that has an edge to it. Jesus is backing this guy up. He's pushing back on this pretended posture of seeking guidance. Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? Do you remember that little awkward moment that Jesus had with his mother at the wedding in Galilee? It's in the Gospel of John. They were at a wedding, and the wedding ran out of wine. Mary came to Jesus and said, you need to fix this. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus wasn't being rude to his mama. What he was saying was, right now, your agenda is not my agenda. Your mission is not my mission. And this kind of thing happens several times in the Gospels. People think that what they have in Jesus is a puppet king that they can manipulate to get what they really want. And that's what's going on with this questioner. Jesus has been teaching that we need to take our stand for Him regardless of what happens to us bodily in this life. Because what matters is not what we have in this life. What matters is the life to come. The point is, this guy's not listening to the teacher. Teacher, I know what you said about not worrying about what they do to you in this life. But could you deal with the family inheritance? So Jesus sets them straight in front of everybody. Man, I'm not here to serve your agenda. Making sure you get more stuff is not on my mission. How often do we do that? We say the right things about Jesus. We maybe even say the right things to Jesus because we want Jesus to give us more of what we want. We'll use our theology. We'll use Scripture. We'll try to get Him to build our kingdom on earth that we have dreamed up for ourselves. But Jesus isn't buying the religiously worded spin. He did not come to build our kingdom. He came to subdue our rebellious hearts into His kingdom and into His cause. So rather than giving this man what he wanted, He gave him what he needed. And what everybody else around him needed. He gave him a warning 
about greed. So we protect our hearts, we guard our hearts by hearing what Jesus said in answer to a question about riches. Secondly, notice that we can guard our hearts by hearing Jesus' warning about riches. Jesus' warning about riches. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on guard, on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, if you choose to go to sleep after this, this is kind of the point of the episode, verse 15. Jesus pivots off the man's bad question to give the whole crowd a life-transforming lesson. There are two urgent commands in verse 15. Take care and be on your guard. A number of years ago, I was watching a, a documentary. It was, it was when you still use DVDs. It was, uh, I was watching a documentary on the Secret Service. And it was showing you some of the tactics and some of the rules that the Secret Service works with. And one of the things that fascinated me most was that when the president is working a rope line, when he's shaking hands with the crowd, there's a Secret Service agent in front of him. And he's watching every hand the president touches. And he's watching the crowd. There's another Secret Service agent, and his hands are always like this. The agent's hands are always like this. And there's another Secret Service agent who's got a hold of the president's belt, and he's got a hand out like this, and he's watching the crowd as well. The point being that if anything happens, somebody twitches, those guys spring into action. Their hands move, the president moves. That's kind of the picture that Jesus has got here. Be on your guard. Take care. He's talking about being alert, being earnest, being attentive against the threat. Now, if the next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are against heresy or against adultery, we might get the attentiveness. That might intuitively make sense to us. We're kind of dialed in to how deadly those high-definition sins are. But the command that he tells us to take that guarded posture against is what Thomas Watson called the insatiable desire of getting the world. Take, be on your guard. Take care, not against those high-definition sins, but against covetousness. Against desiring and determining in my heart to get for myself what others around me have. There's a really pastorally helpful tool that uh, we sometimes don't make the most use of that we can. It's called our Shorter Catechism. And when our Shorter Catechism addresses the Tenth Commandment that has to do with covetousness, it helps us understand what the Lord is saying by summarizing with a biblical teaching on it this way. Listen to what it says, Shorter Catechism, question 80. What is required in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition with our right and charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor and all that is his. Question 81. This is a faithful summary of biblical teaching, by the way. What is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment forbiddeth all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Covetousness, as the Bible envisions it, as our 
catechism faithfully summarizes it. Covetousness is rooted in the desires of the heart. Here's what it is. It is dissatisfaction with what God has given me that leads to a desire for what I see He has blessed others with, so I want it for my satisfaction. God has housed me, but my brother-in-law has upsized to a new neighborhood, and now I feel like I'm living in a dump, so I scheme and I structure to have that. God has clothed me, but the other kids in my grade are wearing cooler brands, so I'm unhappy with myself, and so I dream and dream at night about looking just like they do. God has provided transportation for everybody in my family, but the guys my age are buying that car we always wanted. So if I can just finance one for myself, I'll feel like I've accomplished the dream. We could multiply perhaps far better examples, but that's what's at the heart of it. That's what's at the heart of covetousness. My happiness, my satisfaction is dialed into having more and more of what the marketers and the neighbors and the friends and the TV shows and the pop-up ads tell me I could have for myself. So I desire it. I dream about it. I determine to have it. Now, let me tell you what's going on right now. You're, you're all looking at me quite calm, but inside you're going, is, is, is that covetousness? Oh, that's not covetousness. Is that covetousness? That's not covetousness over there. You know how I know that's going on? Because that's what happened to me when I had to sit with this text. So let me try to help us come to terms with how real this risk might be in our lives by just drawing on a couple of wise sources. Again, Keller, here's what he writes about greed or covetousness. Listen, Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they're guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis. This could easily be a problem for me. Another source, a few hundred years before Keller, Thomas Watson Preaching on the Ten Commandments, Watson suggests some indicators to diagnose when we are, in fact, covetous. Just listen to Watson kind of paraphrase for a moment, if you would. Here's how we might know we're covetousness. Number one, we're covetous when our thoughts are consumed with the world. Watson reminds us, a good man's thoughts are in heaven. He's thinking of Christ's love and eternal recompense. Here's the question, how much of my thought life is consumed with the stuff here and now? Here's Watson's second suggestion, second indicator, when we put more effort into getting earth than getting heaven. Watson's observation about a covetous man is he will turn every stone, break his sleep, take many a weary step for the world, but he will take no pains for Christ or heaven. Number three, when all our conversations are about the world, what dominates my speech? Is it all about, is it primarily about the economy, my work, my stuff, how others are Mishandling the economy, mishandling my stuff. How much of it is actually about God 
and the concerns of his kingdom. Let me ask you a question. When you walk out of here on a Sunday morning and you've just heard preaching the way that Dale Van Dyke preaches or Jeff Seamus preaches or Wayne Veenstra preaches, what's your topic of conversation when you hit the foyer? How much of it is really about God and about his kingdom? And how much of it is about the stuff that we're having pumped at us 24-7 through our digital media? Number four, Watson says, when we overload ourselves with busyness, it might be an indicator. In other words, we're so busy building the passing empire that this life can give us that we have no time to serve God. We're so busy accumulating the stuff that the kingdom of God just doesn't make it to our calendar. Number five, and this is the last one, when our heart is so set upon the world that to get it we will use any means lawful or not. If we're doing any of those five things, and Watson had more, it might be an indicator that this greed has actually got a grip on our hearts. The point is, covetousness is a spiritual danger that we can easily be blinded to. Perhaps, particularly, when God has blessed us with lots of resources that make life comparatively, compared to the rest of the world, pretty easy. When that's the case, the devil, the world, and our own flesh manipulate what can genuinely be a blessing from God into a belief that the whole of life, including walking with Jesus, is supposed to be that easy, so we coast spiritually. And the next thing you know, the idol of more has set up its sanctuary in our hearts, and we're bowing down to it as we fall asleep at night and when we get up in the morning, desiring and determining in my heart to get for myself what others around me have. Jesus says, be on guard against that. And then he tells us at the end of verse 15 why it is that we get enslaved to the desire for more. End of verse 15, he gives us the root issue behind greed or covetousness. Do you see it? For one's life does not consist One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness roots itself in our hearts through the belief that our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. More of what the world around me has will make me safe. It will make me satisfied. It will make me significant. Accumulating more possessions, accumulating more property will make me feel secure. It will make me happy. It will make me impressive in people's eyes, so I will trust wealth. I will give my loyalty to the accumulation of riches. That's why the biblical books of Ephesians and Colossians call it idolatry covetousness. That's why 1 Timothy calls it the mother's sin. It's the root. The love of money is the root that gives life to all sorts of evil. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Greed says this, I believe that my life, that my security, that my satisfaction, that my significance comes from the abundance of my stuff rather than from God. So we guard our hearts by hearing Jesus' warning about riches. Third, we guard our hearts by hearing Jesus' parable about riches. Would you just look back at the text with me? Just let me quickly review the parable for you. 
And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. First, let me give you the picture, and then let me tell you what the problem is. Jesus gives them a picture of a man with a lot of property who has been plentifully blessed. The word for land would have referred to extensive land holdings, possibly a whole region. Those extensive land holdings have produced a large crop, so much so notice that he has had to build not just one, but multiple barns to hold it all. So what Jesus is doing is giving them a picture of a man who has Lots of properties that have really produced. And notice this, that it has been produced for him. The way that the sentence is set up in the original makes the land the subject of the sentence. The point being that it's the land that has produced, not the man. The implication being it's God who's given him the increase. So here's the picture. A man who has been blessed by God with lots of property that has produced more than he will ever need. That's the picture. So what's the problem? Not that he has wealth. In fact, if it needs saying, the Bible, being blessed with wealth, wealth is not condemned in the Bible. In fact, the Bible, in the Bible we see God making people wealthy, like Abraham and David and Solomon and Onesimus. Nor was the problem that the man was planning what to do with the resources God has given him. And just two chapters over, Jesus is going to call foolish someone who begins a building project without calculating what it will cost. Read the book of Proverbs. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. It's not a bad thing. But everyone who is hasty comes to poverty, for example. Listen, let me be very clear. The problem is not God giving prosperity or planning to steward it wisely. That's not what Jesus is against. The problem is the guy's internal monologue. Did you notice it? He thought to himself, I will do this. I will tear down. I will store up my barns, my grain, my food. I will say to my soul, relax, drink, and be merry. One commentator did the math. Of the 54 words in the parable, 18 of them are I, me, and mine. Another person said he's singing a doxology to himself. The problem is that the prosperity that God has blessed, the problem's not the produce. The problem's not the prosperity. The problem is it's all about Him. It's all about what He wants. It's all about His satisfaction. Jesus makes that really clear at the end when he says, this is the way that everyone is. Notice what he says, who lays up treasure for himself. That's the heart of the problem that Jesus is getting at. When our desiring and thinking about material wealth is 
self-desiring, when it is self-determined, when it is self-serving, when it's all about what I want, what I think, what I can do with it for my security, for my significance, for my satisfaction, and not what I can do with what God has given me in His cause for my neighbor's eternal good. Would you just notice how God breaks into the self-defining monologue? It's really abrupt. It's really stark. Down in verse 20, he's having this monologue with himself, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, but God said to him. That's not an interruption you want to have. Fool. So long as he's the only one talking to himself, he's the king of the world that he's built. As soon as God speaks, he's a fool. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's what a fool is. Whether he's confessed God with his lips or not, this man is living like a functional atheist, as though God was not there, as though the riches that would really last, as though the riches that had real value was the material he piled up for his satisfaction here and now. And in God's interpretation of reality, he's a fool because he cannot see what true wealth towards God really is. Generosity in Christ's cause for the eternal good of my neighbor. If we were to follow the passage through and you were to let me preach in another couple of weeks, we'd see that's where Jesus goes with this. Tonight, I simply want to ask, ask you and invite you to ask yourself, just ask yourself this question. Who's doing most of the talking in your heart when it comes to the riches that the world around you says you can have? If you're still young enough to be dreaming about the future and what it might look like, when you dream, when you dream about your education, when you dream about your career and what that will produce for your lifestyle, can I ask you this question? Whose desires are driving the dream? Whose voice is primary in your head, in your heart? If you're at a stage of life where you've been blessed with some resources that could build a barn or two or more, who's driving your desire for that abundance? Who's the primary counselor to you on what's really wise, what's really valuable? You know, it's a question that we can even ask at the stage that our culture calls retirement when we're past what society terms our productive years, where the commercials tell you to believe what this guy believed, relax, eat, drink, be merry, because it's all yours, you earned it. Whatever season of life you're in, Jesus' parable presses this question on our hearts. Whose desires determine how we use the abundance He has given to us? Whose voice is driving what we think is really valuable who is our produce really for? In other words, just put it simply, when was the last time you asked God what He wants you to do with what He has given to you? There's great hope for us, us who are so prone to let greed subtly set up its sanctuary in our hearts. 
the Jesus who warned this crowd didn't end his ministry in this moment. For the grace of the Lord Jesus was that though he was rich, for our sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. The eternal Son of God left the riches of heaven and came down not just to be our teacher, but to take upon Himself the sinful poverty of our idolatry and our covetousness. His earthly ministry ended not with Him teaching crowds of thousands, but His earthly ministry ended him with Him dying on the cross carrying the sinful greed of every person who would ever believe on Him. Christ Himself, by His death and by His resurrection, made us by grace rich toward God through the riches of His own righteousness imputed to us by faith. And in His resurrection, He has poured out His Spirit to give us a new heart that can day after day turn from the greed of this world and desire Christ Himself as our riches, as our satisfaction. Listen, there's hope for the greedy heart. It's Christ Himself, Christ our righteousness, Christ our treasure, if we will turn from our even subtle sins to Him alone. We guard our heart against all covetousness by grasping all of who Christ is for us by grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have so kindly condescended to us that the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we're beginning to celebrate the season, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not consider the riches of heaven that he deserved something to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And he did that so that we who were poor might become rich through his righteousness. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that tonight you would turn our hearts from all the passing treasures of this world, and we pray that you would turn our hearts to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, Christ who is our life, Christ who is our glory. Lord, we pray that in that you would give us the grace of repentance from this subtle sin. And Lord Jesus, where you have blessed us, where you have prospered us, we pray that you would be the primary voice through your word, by your spirit, in our minds and our hearts, making us faithful, fruitful, fervent stewards of your cause. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.